We're going to talk today about the pilgrims in uh, this hour and in the Sunday school hour that follows for those who can be here in the same location. We're just uh, going to go as far as we can during this time and pick up then. I know some of you won't be here in that second hour, but for those who can, it'll, it'll be uh, one continuous session, uh, not the same thing twice for sure, okay? So we're thinking about the Thanksgiving pilgrims in light of, obviously, this week being Thanksgiving, as we've been singing about this morning, and we're here to prepare our hearts for this time this week. And we want to do that today by looking back in history at the origins of our Thanksgiving holiday. We realize that um, Thanksgiving is not a biblical holiday, per se. It's a biblically focused holiday, but it's not biblically mandated or prescribed in in any way. It flows out of American history. And we're going to think about that this morning and the people that gave us that holiday, the pilgrims. Here they are coming on a boat called what? Mayflower, everybody knows that. We're going to learn all about it this morning, okay? Why should we study the pilgrims? Okay, let's think about a quote. Last month, uh, before October 31st, we thought about Martin Luther. This slide, by the way, from a secular textbook, it says, Little did the German monk Martin Luther know when he nailed his protests against Catholic doctrines to the door of Wittenberg's cathedral in 1517, that he was shaping the destiny of a yet unheralded nation. What nation is that? America. Say, what does Martin Luther have to do with America? Well, he influenced the people that we're going to talk about this morning. Confusion abounds about the first Thanksgiving. If you see, if you watch anything this week in the secular media, uh, I would say don't even waste your time listening to anything that they have to say about Anything related to the pilgrims or Thanksgiving, they're just completely misguided. Um, And frankly, probably most of us here today, or many of us, may not know much about the pilgrims. Okay, I won't ask for a raise of hands on that, but many, many people in our culture certainly know nothing about the pilgrims. And many of us as believers who should know a little bit about these things, probably don't. And frankly, also, as in our vein of Christianity, as basically fundamental Bible-believing Christians in our tradition, we are probably our weakest area of all is in the area of church history. I mean, we think that we, we know we... We have it clear up to the Apostle Paul, and then we kind of jump ahead to D.L. Moody and, you know, come on to the modern day. It didn't quite happen that way, okay? And Paul Jaley said, and by the way, this is a man who spent, his, who spent his life studying the pilgrims. He lives in Plymouth, Massachusetts. He says, Christians have not studied their history, have not studied their heritage, and there's become a vacuum of the truth. And that's why in the secular media, and the secular education system, they can come in and fill in that vacuum with all kinds of nonsense because we've allowed this vacuum to grow, specifically about the pilgrims. Now, if they were coming today, they might receive a greeting like this. You can't pray here. This is a public beach, you know? Well, 
That's not exactly how it happened either. Uh, who were the pilgrims? Did the pilgrims really thank the Indians? That's what you'll hear. That's probably the closest thing you'll hear if you watch any of the news media this week talking about the first Thanksgiving. Uh, was the first Thanksgiving a drunken bash? I was, I was in a service when I was in college uh, on the Wednesday night before Thanksgiving, and, a, and another college student from a secular school came in and said how the teacher that day had, had just devoted the class to talking about Thanksgiving. And he explained the true history of Thanksgiving, that it, what it really was was this drunken brawl, you know, this fight that broke out between the pilgrims and the Indians. Now, I don't know where he got that idea from, but that's not exactly what happened. Did the pilgrims really wear funny hats and black and white suits? Well, we all know that's true, right? Guess what? That's not even true. Okay. Were the pilgrims really just a single local church? Now, I will ask for a raise of hands on this. How many know that's true coming in here today? How many of you know that's the case? They're, the pilgrims were a single local church. Now, there's not many people raising your hands, so uh, appreciate the, uh, the, your honesty. We're going to learn a lot today about the pilgrims. Um, now, we could quibble with that. Uh, whether they were a church in the New Testament sense, from our perspective, doctrinally. Okay? They did not practice believer's baptism. They practiced infant baptism. Uh, they certainly had some different views than we do doctrinally on some things. They, they were post-millennialists. They believed they were going to spread the gospel around the world. They were going to take the Reformation around the world it was going to circle all the way back to Jerusalem, the kingdom would come, and then Christ could return. They were coming here in one sense to establish the kingdom of God. Now, I don't believe any of that. I don't believe in infant baptism. We could, you know, making really fine lines, we could say, well, they're not really a New Testament church, but in the broad sense of things, as far as the, the whole world is concerned, they were a single congregation. They were a single local church that came here. Okay? And so someone said the Mayflower Voyage was really a church relocation project. And that's really what it was. And so that's why the Mayflower Compact began with the words, in the name of God, amen. All right? So what is the pilgrim story? We're going to start at the very beginning, in fact, before the beginning, um, there's a whole lot that could be said about all of this. One Thanksgiving, I was um, giving this presentation in a church, and there was a student there uh, getting his Ph.D. in Re Reformation history from England. Okay, so that made me kind of nervous. There's all kinds, of, I mean, we could go on for, for many hours studying the history of everything that happened that led up. So we're not going to cover all of that. We're just going to go back up, just cover some very big, bold ideas. Okay, Henry VIII, how many have heard of him? He had a problem where he came to the point where he wanted a divorce, and the Pope said he couldn't have a divorce, so he divorced the Pope. He said, forget the Pope, 1534, you know what we call that? The act of... Supremacy, it's still in a force to this day in England, it says the King of England, 
where the Queen of England is the head of the state and the what? The church. Now, so if you see, this is 1534. That's how many years after Martin Luther? 17 years after October 31st, 1517. The Reformation is, is beginning, the, the flames of the Reformation are being fanned throughout Europe. There's a hunger in England for a Reformation. So Henry is doing a couple of things. He's, he's, ca- he's drawing on that. He's capturing from that spirit. But is this a real Reformation in England? Not really. It's a, it's a pseudo-Reformation. It's a hybrid. He forms the, the Church of England, over which he is a sovereign, that's sort of Reformational, sort of Roman Catholic. It's this... A new breed called the Church of England. Okay, it's only nominally Protestant. And it's, by and large, through the coming century, going to be illegal to possess the Bible or to read it. Okay? Now, obviously there's a backlash against all of that, and there's the growth of the Reformation in England, as there was throughout Europe. And really in England, the... the Reformers are called the Puritans. They had tasted the fruits of the Reformation in mainland Europe, and they had two heroes who were martyred in England. This is another entire whole story. Nicholas Ridley and Hugh Latimer, 1555. They're burned at the stake for attempting to bring Reformation into England and into the Church of England. Okay, and these, Here we have the famous quote, Latimer at, is being burned at the stake. He, both are being burned at the stake, and Latimer says what? Anyone know? Be strong, Master Ridley, and play the man, for today we shall light such a candle in England as shall never be put out. Okay? And the Puritans are drawing on that energy through the decades to come. They had begun to study the Geneva Bible. That's an English translation of the Bible put together in Geneva, Switzerland in, 15, in the 1560s, and it's really the first ever study Bible. So it has not only the, the English translation, the Geneva translation, but the notes on the bottom of the page. The notes on the bottom of the page were very reformational, very Puritan. Okay, They denounced the king, and so forth. And so the king doesn't like that very much. And the Geneva Bible is spreading through England. The Puritans are reading that, drawing on it. Uh, there's a picture of a flyleaf of the Geneva Bible. Uh, Puritans wanted, they had a lofty goal. They thought they could purify the Church of England. Let's, let's take what we have where it's at, from where it's at, and let's purify the Church. Okay? Is that a reasonable expectation. Not in this climate. So now we have a fourth group. We've got the Church of Rome, the Church of England, the Puritans. Now a fourth group, the Pilgrims. I'd like to just read a couple of verses this morning to show you where they got their name. Really a name that was applied toward them, a name of derision. But it's a biblical name. It comes from the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. 
And then the text that's listed in your bulletin, which we'll also come back to later. 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works which they observe glorify God in the day of visitation. Pilgrims. Strangers on earth, nonconformists, unwilling to bend to the king. By the way, do you think maybe as we move toward the end of the age and we see the things happening in our country, as we're retrogressing, going backward into the darkness of the Middle Ages, sort of, uh, you know, reliving the past, forgetting all that we've learned, forgetting our history, forgetting our heritage as a nation, as a culture, and facing possibly persecution as believers because of that? Do you think maybe we need to learn something from the pilgrims? We need, the, we need to understand and learn from the wisdom of these people. So we're going to sweep ahead here to the pilgrims and how they begin. But here's the problem. It's illegal to separate from the Church of England. Because if you're separating from the Church of England, who's in control of the Church of England? The king. So if you separate from the Church of England, that's treason. You don't have that option. okay? And it's also illegal to leave. So it makes it pretty airtight, doesn't it? So in 1606, we're going to see this group come together. King James I is in power at this time. What do we know King James I for? The King James Version of the Bible, the very same man. The name on the Bible, the name on the spine of the Bible is not reflective of the man. Okay, He was a wicked, cruel tyrant. And he had a little saying about the pilgrims and all the nonconformists in England. He said, I will make them conform or I will harry them out of the land. They would have been fine to be harried out of the land, but he didn't really want that either. So he, this same king who uh, in 1611 is going to authorize the translation of the Bible, and, and that's another whole story, obviously, we won't go into, but he is the one in power at this time. So 1606 in Scrooby, Nottinghamshire County, Eastern England. A band of people come together. They are, remember, they're based sort of out of, off of the Puritans, but they're, they're going to become known as the Pilgrims. They're complete separatists. They don't have this, this unrealistic goal, this dream of changing the Church of England or changing the nation. They just want to follow Scripture. Scripture totally drives their agenda completely. It saturates their hearts and minds and lives. And they had a pastor. They found a nonconforming pastor named Richard Clifton. And they began to meet. They covenanted together in 1606. They met in the home of Elder William Brewster. Uh, in the, his home was called Scrooby Manor. This is actually a famous building in England, famous for 
many, many years before uh, even this time. Brewster, though, is the, the occupant at this time. Scrooby Manor, it was something of a hotel as well as his personal residence. We'll see he was a high-ranking official. And uh, it had 40 rooms, so it had ample space. Pilgrims met there, and they met there, of course, clandestinely. Uh, what they're doing is illegal in holding these meetings. But uh, Brewster had attended Cambridge University, and he followed his father as a servant of the Archbishop of York. Um, and so they have Clifton, they have Brewster, and then they call a man named John Robinson. And he would become known as the Pilgrim's Pastor. Okay, He was 30 years old when he comes to assist Clifton, and uh, he was a graduate of Cambridge University Divinity School, became a nonconformist, learned in Hebrew, Greek, Latin, and theology. And he is the one, as I said, who will really become the pastor of the group. And he is the man who is credited as teaching these people, shaping them into the group that would come to the new world. So, now we have another character. We've got Clifton and Robinson, the pastors. We've got Brewster, the elder, the lord of the manor where they meet. And now we've got William Bradford. He was basically an orphan his whole life. He, was, he had had some physical problems, some illness. He lived with two uncles who treated him well. But um, because of his physical limitations, in fact... They saw the potential of having him educated, which was a, a unique and rare opportunity for him, so that he could help them. He was, his family uh, ran a number of businesses. They had a, a fair amount of wealth, but they needed an educated person coming up who could deal with letters and, and, and uh, deal with their accounts. And they saw that opportunity to groom William Bradford for that role, but his, uh, he's basically an orphan, and at 12 years of age, somehow, he comes into contact with the Scrooby congregation. And when he makes the decision that he will continue on that path, his uncles disown him completely. He ends up having to go live with Brewster. Okay, Now, he's just like all the 12-year-olds you know. He walked between 8 and 12 miles one way to church because they had the McDonald's Playland in back. No, that's not why. No, because he said he went there each Sunday to hear the illuminating ministry of Richard Clifton at 12 years of age. Here's what he later wrote about Clifton. He said he was a grave and reverend preacher who by his pains and diligence had done much good and under God had been the means of the conversion of many. So here's William Bradford, and he's going to be a key figure now all the way through his life in this story. Okay, He's going to write, the words I just quoted come from his book of Plymouth Plantation, which give us the history of the pilgrims. Brewster and Bradford are with the pilgrims all the way from Scrooby into the New World. The entire way. And Bradford is later going to become the governor of 
Plymouth Plantation. He's elected for 30 out of 35 years in Plymouth Colony. The reason he wasn't elected the other five is he was so embarrassed that uh, they always wanted him to be their leader. He was trying to find someone else to be governor, but they kept electing him over thirty over the course of 35 years. So we often refer to him as Governor Bradford. Okay? So in 1607, the congregation realizes the worsening conditions in England, the looming persecution, they're meeting in secret, all these things happening. And so they decide, let's have a second exodus under a new Moses. We need to leave England. Now where are they going to go? Are they going to the new world yet? No, not yet. Okay. So their first attempt, they're going to go to the Netherlands. They're going to go to Holland. And so in 1607, they hire an English ship captain to take them to Holland, and he betrays them, has them all ready to go. He's taken basically their life fortunes for this journey, and he's got them all set to go over to Holland, and he turns them back over to the English authorities. Keeps all their possessions, keeps all their money. They're all arrested and jailed. You think, well, that's the end of the pilgrims, right? No, you don't know the pilgrims. They get, out, they get through that. They get out of jail. They are still going to Holland. They get their, raise enough money to try again. This time they hire a Dutch ship captain. Okay? But here's what happened. They had the men go first. They had this uh, Dutch ship captain. He was on the up and up, but he wanted to obviously get out of there as fast as he could. He had the men on the first boat. Uh, They went through some different tribulations to get all this going, and he gets the boat ready to go, and he's sailing out of there. And the women and children are stuck in the mud behind. And Brewster and Bradford stayed with the women and the children. And the men in the lead boat are screaming, hollering, you know, stop the boat, turn us around. And the, the ship captain acted like he didn't hear a thing. He just sailed on. So the women, the children, Brewster and Bradford, are all taken, arrested, jailed again. Okay. But the king, finally, about four months later, this is in the spring of 1608, and about four months later in August, the king said, I, I'm sick of these people. Get them out of here. Send them to Holland. So they're all reunited in Holland. For those four months, the men didn't know they would ever see Brewster, Bradford, or their wives or their children again. But they come back together in Holland. Okay, uh, Bradford is writing about the journey to Holland here. Not the journey to the New World, but the journey to Holland. He says, These things did not dismay them, though they did sometimes trouble them, for their desires were set on the ways of God and to enjoy his ordinances, But they rested on his providence and knew whom they believed, yet this was not all. For though they could not stay, yet were they not allowed to go, suffered to go. But the ports and havens were shut against them, so as they were fain to seek secret means of conveyance and to bribe and fee the mariners and give extraordinary rates for their passages. And yet they were oftentimes betrayed. So they finally make it to Holland. And in Holland, they had religious toleration. They did not have religious freedom, as we understand it historically in America, that hadn't been thought of yet by anyone. 
By the way, we're again, we're sort of regressing in our country. <laughs> if you listen to our leaders, they're trying to finesse this to this very issue today. We heard about this on Thursday night for those who are here with the the, the meeting we had with the church's insurance agent. You know, religious freedom, no, that's, that's not, that's passe. You know, there, there's freedom to practice your religion, by which they mean, you know, we'll, te- we'll tell you what you can practice and what you can't, and you're free to do what we allow you to do, which basically is, you know, throwing away our whole history and heritage in this country of freedom of religion, free exercise of religion. So that's sort of like what it was in Holland back then. They could do certain things. They could meet freely. They could not evangelize. They could not share the gospel with others. Uh, And there were other problems as well. The pilgrims spent one year in Amsterdam, and then they moved to Leiden, and they spent 11 years in Leiden. And here's a map. You can see uh, Amsterdam and Leiden. Okay? And it was a time of strengthening. The congregation worshipped for eight hours each Sunday. Now, that's not eight different services you could pick from. That's eight hours. Eight to twelve, three to seven. That was their Sunday. Okay? They owned their own church building in Leiden. And Robinson even had the opportunity to teach at the University of Leiden and was involved in theological debates. and So there was much greater opportunity and freedom there than there ever could have been in England. By the way, by this time, Clifton is gone. He goes to another congregation in Amsterdam and goes to serve a different congregation. So Robinson becomes the, the pilgrim's pastor. And this, these are the 11 years under his preaching where this group really grows into what we know of them as the pilgrims. Bradford called it a time for growth in the grace of the Lord, God preparing the church for the pilgrim voyage. Uh, They grew to be a congregation of about 300 people during that time. Uh, I'm guessing that almost all of that growth was from within, from the families in the church, because, again, it was illegal to really evangelize, um, and I don't know if anyone knows how many, if any, Dutch people came in from the outside to the congregation. But it was a time of difficulty as well. As I said, no opportunities for evangelism, which was really so much the heart of the pilgrims. Uh, The religious tolerance that was offered there in in the Netherlands was um, attractive to others as well, which included other kinds of churches, cultic groups, uh, pagan religions. And so it was really not a a very uh, excellent environment spiritually overall. The secular culture offered many temptations. And get this, there were 14-hour work days for the adults and the children. No school. Every member of the family worked 14 hours a day in the factories and the shops there in Holland. The Dutch people appreciate the pilgrims, but they did not share their values or their ideals. And they realized that the uh, 
spiritual conditions there, the temptation for their children to marry their Dutch neighbors. And the pilgrims, really, their heart, their desire is to carry the gospel to the remote parts of the world, in Bradford's words. And the Dutch government, realizing, getting wind, there was also the fact that there was uh, the possibility of a war with Spain coming into Holland, and and basically a civil war breaking out there. And so the pilgrims really look around and say, basically, we've got to get out of here again as well. The Dutch government, hearing about this, offers to move them at its own expense anywhere in the world in Dutch territory. But the pilgrim's heart was to go to the New World. They wanted to come here in search of absolute freedom and also because of their desire to share the gospel here in this New World. Bradford said a great hope and inward zeal they had of laying some good foundation or at least to make some way thereunto for the propagating and advancing the gospel of the kingdom of Christ in those remote parts of the world, yea, though they should be but even stepping stones unto others for the performing of so great a work. If we can just be stepping stones so that those who come behind us can walk over our backs and build on what we've done, they said that would be, that would fulfill our purpose. So they wanted to come to the new world for freedom, but ultimately for sharing the gospel. Can you imagine people in the midst of persecution going through the things that they have endured, and yet their thoughts are not introspective about their own suffering, but they're thinking about how can we have a worldwide multi-generational missions program to take the gospel throughout the world. That was their focus in the midst of all. So they decided to come to the new world. They determined to go to Jamestown, which was under the rule of the king. That was their desire. They they, They did not really have a political agenda or were not thinking of starting a new country other than that they wanted to be in a place where they had total freedom. Jamestown is under the rule of the king. That's one of the few places they knew about or had heard about or an option to go. They wanted to go to Jamestown. By the way, they had thought of going down to South America to Guyana. You ever hear that before? Think of how history might have been different if they had gone to Guyana. Now, there were a couple of problems down there. They had heard that there were uh, Spanish interests down there as well. And they heard about the Spanish in Holland, and they said, we don't want to be anywhere near this Spanish army thing. We're not going to Guyana. The other thing they thought that was interesting is they thought, you know, in Guyana, it's going to be very warm. It's going to be a very um, nice climate. And you know what? That's not good because we're going to be tempted to be lazy. And so we need to go somewhere where it's much more hardy, where it's much more challenging. And so that's one of the other reasons they didn't go there. So they wanted to stay loyal to England. They had no desire to found a new country. They go under the auspices of the Virginia Company. They're financed by some investors called the London Company. We'll think about them later. The church had gone to three, grown to 300. They took a a vote to see 
who's going to go to the new world? And the idea was that Robinson, the pastor, would either, if the majority were going, he would go. If the majority were staying, he would stay. And so, you know, this was, this was up in the air for a while, but the majority stayed by a long shot. They were planning to go later, but not at this initial point. Sadly, Robinson died never leaving Leiden. So he stays back, and Brewster essentially becomes the pastor of the traveling group, William Brewster. Thirty-five pilgrims agree to go to the New World. And as I said, Robinson dies before he can rejoin them. The pilgrims set sail in the summer of 1620. So they've been in Holland for 12 years. Okay? In Leiden for 11. July 22, the pilgrims buy this ship called the Speedwell. And they they leave Leiden to join another ship called the Mayflower, which is a hired cargo boat in England. Two interesting things about that. The problem with the Speedwell, anyone know what it was? It didn't speed well. Now, all was not as it appeared. We'll talk about that in a moment. The interesting thing about the Mayflower, anyone know what it had been used to carry all these years? Wine. It was a wine ship. All these years it carried these, uh, you know, whatever you keep wine in in these days, vats of wine or whatever you call them, casts of wine, that was spilling out and sloshing out all over the ship. Keep that in the back of your mind, okay? Now, August 5th, so the, the pilgrims are on the Speedwell. They leave Southampton August 5th to join the May, uh, uh, with the Mayflower. They've already joined the Mayflower. They're leaving together, but the Speedwell fails. Now, what really happened probably was this. The captain they hired for their ship, the Speedwell, who I think had sold them that boat as well, he didn't want to come over here. And he also had an ingenious way to get his money back and keep his ship, which was uh, he didn't trim the sails. So the sails would catch deliberately in the wind and they would torque the ship and, and they would, it, would be, it would make it appear as if the ship was leaking when it really there was nothing wrong with it except the sails hadn't been trimmed. So the boat was filling with water, and and it looks like it's not seaworthy. But basically, this was a ruse imposed on the pilgrims by the captain. Um, What did Jesus say about that? He said, the children of this world are are more stupid in their generation than the children of light. Do I have that right? No, it's just the opposite, right? The children of this world are wiser in this generation than the children of light. So when we go out, we need to be wise as what? Serpents, but harmless as doves. The pilgrims had a ruse pulled over, you know, had the wool pulled over their eyes on this one. So the captain goes through this little maneuver and says, Oh, you know, it's not so bad. I'll give you half your money back for the ship. Okay, so now he's got his ship and he's got his money and he doesn't have to go to the new world. So now all 102 passengers and crew, so there's 35 pilgrims. 67 strangers, they called them. This would be all the crew and anyone else 
that was not a member of the pilgrim congregation would be considered a stranger. And uh, many of these would be Church of England, if not all of them would be Church of England members, nominal Christians. But uh, there was, for instance, at least one man who was really part of the pilgrim congregation, but not a, a, a church member, so he was also even considered a stranger. So 35 pilgrims, 67 strangers. On the Mayflower, 100 feet long, 25 feet wide. And during this entire trip, because what do you notice about the date? Is this a good time to leave England? No, we're sailing right into the winter, aren't we? And, um, you know, but they had to go. They didn't, and they had no other choice, and they had done the best they could. So they're going to all have to stay below deck the entire trip. And the figure that's given is either between four to five and a half feet of headroom. The average pilgrim was about five foot four, so even at that, uh, they would be hitting their head at the very best case, they'd be hitting their head on the ceiling or bending down the entire trip. Uh, 102 passengers. Here's, here's the journey we've talked about from Leiden to Southampton, and then now they're leaving on the Mayflower from, from Plymouth. Here's a recreation of the Mayflower, built much bigger so that modern Americans can tour it and actually walk through it. And you can see this if you go to Plymouth today, the Mayflower too. It's actually made the, the journey that the pilgrims took. Very rough trip in cramped space. Women and children would never have even been allowed on such a trip. This was such a unique uh, voyage in every way, and the fact that they were even there was very, very unusual. By the way, there were three women who entered the journey uh, carrying children, pregnant. Okay, And one of them gave birth on the ship, and you know what they called the name of the baby? Oceanus. Unfortunately, he died a short time later. But uh, So there was one birth on the voyage. There was one death as well. One of the strangers, one of the crew who hated the pilgrims, he would curse them and blaspheme God and mock the pilgrims. And he suddenly fell ill of a very severe fever and sickness and uh, died. And they buried him at sea. And the pilgrims had a, a, basically a funeral service for him. So one birth, one death. I could really uh, try to ruin your morning and your lunch by going into some of the gruesome details of what it would have been like to be on this ship for these two months. I, will, I won't do that. But just by saying that, I think in your imagination, you can probably just think of an overview of what it would have been like in the five feet of space, because the ship is rolling and pitching throughout this entire storm-tossed journey. Everybody is sick all the time. In fact, there was a time when there, was, there were only two men who could even stand up and help anyone. William Brewster, never got sick, and Captain Miles Standish, who was a pilgrim. And so these men on the Mayflower cared for the whole group there between the decks, 
Everyone else is just completely wiped out with sickness. Why didn't they get even sicker, even unto death? What may have prevented and helped them to some extent prevented the spread of disease? What did I say about the Mayflower? It was a wine ship. This wood had been saturated for for years with wine, with alcohol. And so that probably was one factor that, that uh, many of these people did not get much sicker and die. By the way, that's an example of what the pilgrims called God's unusual providences. Uh, for whatever theological disagreements we would have with the pilgrims, this is an area where we would be completely comfortable with their theology. You see, they were not looking for a miracle. They, they were not in any way focused on seeing a sign miracle and God's going to do, you know, and we're going to see something and we're going to, you know, God's going to lift us up and put us in America. They weren't doing, they wouldn't have had, stood for any of that. But they had a very keen sense and awareness and trust in God and an awareness of his working in their life and even trusted him to work in very unusual ways. And they called that his, his unusual providence or his strange providence. And if it wasn't for his unusual providence, they'd have been dead many times over. And there is just one way. Bradford said this was an adventure almost worse than death. Let me tell you one other strange providence that happened to the pilgrims. And with this, we'll bring this portion to a close and pick up from here in the next hour. One day, a couple of guys who were well enough to stand up and look around were looking at the main beam of the ship, the Mayflower. And one said to the other, do you see what I see? Am I seeing that right? There was a crack in the main beam. And they called Master Jones down, the ship captain, and he gave his professional opinion. He said, yeah, that's a crack, and we're all going to die. Because this ship is going straight to the bottom, and that's pretty much the end of it. But one of the pilgrims had brought along this huge jack screw. Now, can you imagine when they're standing in line to get on the Mayflower? (laughs) This guy and his wife, and she's like, you know. And he's bringing this this jack screw. And historians to this day question, argue what this screw was for. Some believe it was a jack that was used in lifting a roof up onto uh, the roof of the house. But the other option is that this was a part of a printing press, which you know was invented at this time and used at this time. And, and I like what someone said. He said, I have to believe that this was part of, the, of a printing press, that this man had a vision and a burden that when he got to the New World, he was going to print Bibles and books and pamphlets and tracts and gospel literature, and he brought along the main part of the printing press. They took that jack screw, propped it up against that main beam, laminated the beam with rope, the ship was saved. God's unusual 
providences. And they had to rely on God's working in their lives at just such times or they wouldn't have ever made it here. And God saved them and he brought them through. And we're going to continue in the next hour thinking about how they come then to the new world, November 9, 1620. They didn't land at Jamestown. The wind blew them far north to some place they'd never heard about didn't know anything about. Oh, but that was another one of these strange providences in more ways than one. Has God worked in your life that way this past year as we approach Thanksgiving? Can you think about what God has done for you that apart from which you wouldn't even be here anymore this morning? And you couldn't have planned it, you couldn't have even requested it, because you wouldn't have known what to request. But you look back and say, now, at just the exact moment in time, not a moment too soon, God, in the most unusual way, provided for my need. Probably every one of us here could think of something like that. Maybe something minor, maybe something extremely huge. That's why we have Thanksgiving. That's why the pilgrims celebrated Thanksgiving. We'll learn about it in the next hour. That's why we celebrate Thanksgiving, to take a time at the end of the year to think about God's providence in our lives. His providence. He has provided for us. And the greatest provision he has made, of course, for any of us, is the free offer of salvation through Jesus Christ, He died on the cross for our sins and rose again so that we could have forgiveness of sin and eternal life. That's why the pilgrims came here, to share that message. And that's ultimately why we're here today as well. If you have never trusted in Christ as your Savior and your only hope of forgiveness and of heaven, realizing that you deserve judgment and hell for your sin, as I do, but trusting in Christ as your Savior... Today can be the time that you trust him. Please speak to me if you'd like or anyone from the church who can help you. If that is your need that you need additional information about, but you really don't even need to speak to me, you can trust Jesus Christ right where you are now if you never have before. Let's close in prayer, and then we'll end our service, and we'll pick this up in the next hour. Father God, we thank you today for the story of the pilgrims. What an amazing foundation that we have in this nation and for this holiday of thanksgiving and as Christians, Lord, in our history, in our heritage, uh, to trace spiritually back our ancestry to people such as these, strangers and pilgrims on the earth who were willing to circle the globe with their meager abilities that they had because they had such a desire to take the gospel and to seek freedom to worship you, Lord. Help us to be humbled and to be motivated by their example, by all that we see, and help us to be thankful today for the way that you have provided for us in this year. And we pray your blessing now on this time as we close in Jesus' name. Amen.